Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Trades Talk. Maggie Wymore here. And on today's episode, we bring on Scott Lisek of Castle Rocks. He's the CEO of Castle Rocks Landscape out of Pennsylvania. He is also the chief visionary at Inspire You, which is his own brand of coaching and training that he's developed in the last few years. It's really taken off. Justin, I know you had a conversation back with Scott in 2021, right when we started Inspire You, and part of the reason we wanted to bring him on the podcast today. So what are your takes on today's conversation? Yeah, guys, you're going to love this episode with Scott. He dives into the mindset of a CEO and the top three responsibilities that he practices, talks about coaching. He goes really in depth about his philosophy around snow and how he's using snow as the core service of his business to scale. He's growing rapidly. He's definitely a force on the East Coast. And I think this episode just provides a full-rounded wealth of knowledge on CEO management, coaching your team. We also dive into the generational challenges and successes we've seen with the up-and-coming 18 to 25-year-old employees. Yeah. First off, I loved his take on that, just the demographic of my team that I manage. But Also, I really liked his philosophy on scaling versus growth and how you define and separate the two different terms in your organization. A lot of times those terms are used interchangeably, but he has a great philosophy on how to differentiate them and really set your company up for success. Yeah, this one's going to really inspire you to grow, inspire you to go back to the drawing board with your company, your team, and probably reset your vision a little bit, set it a little higher. He's got a way of motivating us to rethink our vision and rethink what we do. So hope to uh, take some fun things away from this one and and dive in. Yeah, there's a reason why his company is called Inspire You. So let's dive in and listen to our conversation with Scott. All righty, let's go. All right, guys, we're back here with another episode. This week, we have Scott with Castle Rock Landscaping and Chief Visionary at Inspire You. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Scott. So give us a little background. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And let's dive into you. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So I'm Scott Lisak. I'm the CEO of Castle Rocks Landscape Company in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. We service all of Eastern Pennsylvania. Been in the industry since 2001. I was 14 in 2001. So take that for what it's worth. But that's where it all started. And it started just like a lot of other people, chucking a truck and worked my way up through and learned stuff. Went to Penn State for landscape contracting, design build focus. That was kind of my motivation while I was in high school. I was either going to Penn State or I wasn't going to go and I was going to keep working on the company. But either way, Castle Rocks was part of the mission, part of what I wanted to do. I figured it out at that point in time. Throughout the years, got into the fire department. I am a now retired firefighter, worked in volunteer and combination departments for about 17 years and got to the point that Wanted to focus 100% on all the landscaping and had enough of that, miss it, and went through years building up a pretty good design-build company and realized some limitations there when we weren't focusing on maintenance and snow. So throughout the past about five to six years now, we've been really transitioning from high-end residential design-build to full-scale facilities management, specializing in distribution and institutional 24-7 facilities with a large focus on snow. So that's the elevator pitch. We can dive a lot further into any of those details, though. <laughs> <laughs> nice. When did you make that shift from firefighter and other activities to going full-time into landscaping? 
So it was always full-time in landscaping and always kind of full-time in fire too. It, that was the nice part about doing it. And from a volunteer side of things, you can kind of do it whenever you want. When I was in positions that I was getting paid on call and stuff, I had shifts that I was able to work around what I was doing with the landscaping. So they always meshed really well. They were both pretty full-time. The fire side of things ebbed and flowed a little bit. I gave more focus always to the landscape than I did to the fire, but that was more of a hobby that I got really good at. Nice. So what was the big shift? What pushed you guys into going into maintenance and snow? We hear this a lot from design build companies today. What was the motivating factor for you guys? For us, it was simple. Just looking at the business and what we had to do to scale it, what we had to do to grow it. Design build still is probably arguably my passion besides snow. I love snow, especially on the scale that we're into snow. I really like it. But Design build would still be my passion. I got to the point, though, I realized I'm not out there laying pavers. I'm not designing it. I'm not selling it. I'm not doing any of it. And we're feeling the resistance of taking three years to train a really good hardscaper and taking three years to train really good people in masonry and have to get the guys up to par to be able to perform at a certain level. Whereas maintenance, you can get guys primed and ready to go on a maintenance crew in one eight-hour training day. And they're pretty proficient at all the tasks within a month. And it's very process-driven. Everything's relatively the same each site. So from a scalability aspect, we got to a point that if we were going to grow and we were going to grow as fast as we were dreaming, it had to be something a little bit more aggressive than the design build, the way we were doing design build at the time anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's funny because you're one of the first people I've ever talked to that said that they love snow <laughs> that everyone's scared of and scared to tackle. But I know specifically this year, you've made quite the investment into your snow program. Give our listeners a little bit of insight on you know, what does your snow program look like? What investments are you making? How are you growing that department? So the snow is really rapidly has become our bread and butter. That's what we're building. We are a snow company that's funded by landscape in the off season rather than a landscape company that's funded by snow. This year, if we have an average winter, our revenue is going to be probably about 60% snow for 2024. So it's the first year we've really made that shift beyond the 50% mark with snow. It's just really the pocket we live in in Eastern Pennsylvania, we have a ton of distribution. So we're not doing HOAs, we're not doing apartments. I mean, residential, literally anywhere people live, we don't touch. It's all distribution, logistics centers, institutional. We have a couple of healthcare facilities that we do. Everybody's open 24-7. And we sell our services as an insurance policy to our clients. The purchasers are purchasing an insurance policy. And we have a couple different packages that we can sell from there, whether it's high liability or low liability. What do you want? Do you want more risk in the amount of money you're going to have to spend? Well, then... You can pay us a little less at the beginning as long as the equipment's paid for, and every time it snows, we're going to bill you. Or you can pay us a lot more at the beginning, but you know what your cash flow is for 12 months out of the year with snow, and you don't owe us any extra. So we have a couple different packages set up to cater to the client's needs at that rate, and it's all a cash flow game. Yeah. Scott? One of the biggest hurdles that we overcame when I was working on the snow side of things. I worked for a company in Chicago. So average snow year was 70 inches. And one of the things that we had an issue overcoming was labor because snow labor has to be ready. It has to be trained. It has to be on call 24 seven. And so how do you overcome that difficulty when growing a snow business? 
That's a great question. So we ramp up for snow season. We have about double the staff for snow that we do during green season. We take advantage of guys that are getting laid off. Equipment operators from excavating companies that aren't working when it's snowing. Roofers, exterior contractors. That's been our strategy for years. It's actually been a little challenging this year. It hasn't worked the best that it has. But we actually haven't really been experiencing any challenges hiring for a little over a year now. We're kind of past the challenges of hiring. So everything worked out. We have a reserve list of about 10 people above and beyond our full staff. But the way we're able to do that is we train our full-time guys that are with us 12 months out of the year, literally year-round on snow. We'll do snow workshops in the middle of the summer. We set our geographic areas up into zones that have zone managers, sub-managers within those zones. So everybody really knows what they're doing. There's going to be an equipment manager. There's going to be a truck manager. There's going to be a sidewalk manager underneath that zone. And, you know, it's just really, really standardized and scaled out. So one person never has more than five people underneath them. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's one important thing when it comes to hiring anyone and creating any sort of labor force at your company. Justin does this really well at K&D is there's always going to be other jobs out there. But if you get the right people in, few right people in and treat them well, they're going to spread that word of mouth and stay with you and ultimately bring their friends and people that they know to work from you. So it's really key to get those that first few good hires in, treat them well and build that culture. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And it's really the most challenging part about building a really good culture is the first three or four people coming into that culture and getting them to really buy in and going through the people that's going to take for people that you want to really be spreading that culture. That's been my experience. Yeah, Scott, you guys, from what I can see, have a great culture over there. And and we've shared the stage a few times. You've shared some stories <laughs> that are pretty powerful. I think had some people, you know, kind of rethinking their approach to leadership. When we talk about what an owner or CEO should be doing on a day-to-day basis, what's your take on that? What are the one to three responsibilities or key roles a CEO should be playing in a service-based company? That's an awesome question. My opinion, number one, the CEO, assuming it's an owner CEO and not getting into a bigger scale that an owner is going to be on a board of directors with a CEO underneath that, but owner CEO, number one, hands down, nothing more than this. Their responsibility is to carry the financial burden, period. That's what we do as owners. We have to view our businesses as investments. I say that, give so much focus on that because a lot of owners miss that think, what's my job? What am I doing? I'm not out there with the guys anymore. I'm not doing this. That company does not exist without you signing the leases, without you signing the loans, without you putting up the financial backing. That's what business is. So that's first and foremost. Second is motivating and coaching your teams. If somebody's struggling with something, pull them in and talk to them. If somebody is needing help learning a skill, help them learn that skill. That doesn't mean you have to teach them that skill either. Give them the resources to learn any skills that they need. You don't have to know everything. Right. Third, I would say is really just making sure everybody is together. You know, the motivation in number two, the coaching and everything is really important, but make sure everything's together like oiled machine. Look at the entire package as a machine. Make sure processes are working here, processes are working there. The systems put it keeping everything together. And when there's a gap, You don't necessarily have to figure out the problem, but you do have to recognize that gap and figure out what's going on in there or who can figure out what's going on in there and put the remedy in place. 
Yeah, that's great information. And I like the insight as a owner CEO of KD. We, my dad and I, my brother, we sign a lot of personal guarantees. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much every loan we get has a personal guarantee with it. Even credit at site one, they want you to personally guarantee that line. So the financial burden side is something we often just do because it's something that's asked of us. It's like, oh, hey, sign on this dotted line and just get it done. But you take a minute to read that, you realize I'm putting my personal assets up to back this business. And I think sometimes we either A, don't look into that enough to see the ramifications of what happens if the business doesn't work. And then B, that is a huge responsibility that should be taken very carefully as a business owner and make sure that when you are investing in your company, you are 100% into that company. It's not just a side business because your personal assets are now on the line, right? So absolutely. And I like how you put that number one. Number two, motivating and coaching the team, hugely valuable, something that maybe we overlook. I think motivating is super important and somewhat easy to do for folks that are inclined to motivate. But the coaching element is something that I look at coaching as having the tough conversation when someone needs to hear it. Like you said, getting someone back on track when they fall off. And then number three, cohesiveness and alignment, making sure the team's together, the culture's focused forward, and we're moving towards a common vision, right? I think those are three great takeaways. This is a question I try to ask every CEO I come in contact with. And it's amazing the range of answers I get. And it kind of shows in the culture of their company, their responses dictate a lot of how that company's ran. And I think those are three good takeaways, Scott. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's your take on that whole conversation there? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that stand out to me. The first being you're talking about filling the gaps. And so that's something that I talk about a lot in my day to day is, you know, as a software provider in the industry, we help bridge those gaps for many different companies. And they look different every single company, depending on its age, depending on its size, all of that. So extremely important to definitely bridge those gaps to relieve frustration. The other thing I wanted to touch on was the coaching side of things. And so you made the decision to start your own brand, Inspire You, ultimately to coach and lead the next generation of business owners. Can you speak a little bit about that pivot and why you wanted to kind of step out and start this personal brand with Inspire You? Yeah, absolutely. I love coaching. I love helping people. It comes from the fire department side of things and When I retired from the fire department, I was a captain. So I had a lot of experience writing training programs, writing SOPs, getting in front of people that change things in departments and everything. It really, I took a lot of those skills and brought them over to landscape. So that was one of the biggest areas that I recognized for success. I got to a point that I realized we were really doing something great. At the time when we were about a million dollar company, starting to have conversations with other people that had substantially larger companies, they were asking me all kinds of questions. I was like, wow, we really are providing something that's cool with 10 employees right now. I want to get a little bit further outreach from where I am. So I just started dabbling in it and seeing who would be interested. And, you know, that was my side hustle. It really took off. People need to hear what we were doing. And Coaching isn't giving somebody the answers. That's the whole thing as a CEO, as a coach, whatever it is, it's not giving people the answers, even if you know it. It's asking them questions to get them to the answer and allowing them to make mistakes. I mean, especially as a CEO, especially as an owner, 
if you have somebody that's getting almost there and they're going to make a mistake and you see it coming, sometimes the best thing we can do is let them make that mistake. Make sure it's a $500 mistake and not a $500,000 mistake, but allowing them to make that mistake, not reprimanding them for it, but at the end, coming back together and saying, okay, what could we have done differently? Did I not give you the tools for success? Could you have done something differently? That allows their mind to focus and figure it all out, do the problem solving themselves rather than just giving them the answer and becoming reliant on it. And just on that point real quick, is was there a time when you weren't able to do that and you jumped in and gave them the answer and you've since reflected on that? Or has this kind of been a core competency of yours I, at all times? I would say both sides of it. Uh, you know, today I still jump in too early and give the answer sometimes. And it's like, oh man, that was a great coaching moment that I just blew. And yeah. other times I'll go the opposite direction and ask way too many questions and be like, we just wasted a lot of time on this like simple concept that we could have gotten out of the way. So I think the direct answer is really a delicate balance. It's a skill to practice. It is a skill to really hone in and you're never going to have it perfect. Just continue to practice it every day, learn from your mistakes and learn from your successes as well. Yeah. I think that a lot of times I have a tendency to jump in and just fix things myself. And a good manager either does one of three things. They do it themselves, they delegate it, or they disregard it, get rid of it out of their mind. (laughs) And I tend to just do it myself because I want it done a certain way. But as I've moved into more of this director role, I manage a team of about 100 people. And one of the things I've noticed is being a coach is not only asking the right questions, but having the ability to let people see the bigger picture and look outside of the tunnel vision that they are within. Because sometimes you get so locked into an idea, so locked into a task that you don't have the ability to see the bigger picture, see other things that are being influenced by what they're doing. And that is your role as the coach is to say, okay, this is great, but how is it impacting this part of the business? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a large degree of empathy and compassion that you have to have. You have to be able to be in touch with other people's emotions and That's really what makes it successful, no matter what caliber you're coaching at, being able to see where somebody is and meet them where they are, meet them exactly where they are. And if somebody's talking a little bit slower, slow down the way you talk. If somebody's talking really fast and upbeat, talk fast and upbeat and meet them where they are. But that's a skill in itself. You have to really practice that for years and years and get to the point that you can read that in other people, read their body language. And I think that's really what separates people that are good at coaching from people that need a little bit more practice. Anybody can be good at it because it's just it's a skill set to learn. But that's one of the biggest keys with that I've found for myself. And I get better at that every day. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk just for a minute in my peer group? We were having this conversation last month around the next generation employees, those who are coming out of college right now, those who are maybe just 20 to 30 years old in that range, there's, especially from the older generation, there's a lot of frustration. They thought the millennials were bad, but I mean, (laughs) this is next level. So how can we update and modernize our approach to the new incoming class of employees in this coaching mindset? And I think we all have a lot of experience in this. So I'd love to dig into this and just get everyone's take. So Scott, what's your take on this? Well, I I think that goes, that's a really good question to ask after what I was just talking about. That comes to that empathy and compassion and where they are. The newest generation coming in, and first and foremost, I have a lot of respect for them. We have a bunch of people that are 
18 to 24 right now that are some of the best people we've brought in in a long time. They grind. They're really into it. They want to learn new skills, arguably to a higher degree than the ones that are the 24 to 30 range right now. So I, I really like to see that that younger generation, and hopefully it keeps up. Anybody can learn anything, and it comes down to what are we going to tolerate? How are we going to motivate them to learn the skills? And public schools changed, point blank. The technology that we have available, when I was a kid, when probably when we were all kids, I think we're similar ages, went through that period we didn't have computers. And then in high school, we did have computers everywhere. And it was like, well, man, this, this is crazy. So we like we experienced the shift. But the new generations had it the entire time. They've had it since they were babies. So we have to recognize that. And what can we do to accent that? How do they learn on computers differently than the hands-on approach? And how can we shift that to a hands-on approach? And I don't necessarily have the answers to all this stuff, but that's the way we need thinking about it. Yeah. I could talk about this topic all day. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I like this topic. <laughs> I mean, the team that I manage, the average age is about 24. So can definitely tell about this next generation. I think it actually has a lot to do with the person managing them as well in what their experience and upbringing and what that looked like. Because a team where the average age is 24 or 22 or whatever it is, with a manager who is a boomer generation is going to look very different than a team being managed by a millennial like myself. Yep. And I think that there, it just has to do with like what you said, this transition that we went through in our lives where things weren't, technology wasn't involved. We weren't efficient. I'm going to put it out there. Boomers did great things, but efficiency was not there. They had to you know, be in the office. They had to work 50, 60 hour weeks because just the efficiencies weren't there that are there today. They didn't have chat GPT to write <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> emails for them and descriptions for them. So I think that we have to manage and train to that. I think the 40-hour work week is something that is a great standard, but it's going away because of these efficiencies. And with that, I think that one of the main things that this generation is able to do, and so it sets them apart, is they were raised by a generation that let them feel the way they needed to feel and explore and do all these different things. They weren't so raised in a generation that was so strict. And what that's allowed them to do is be more creative. I've noticed that they like to be recognized and rewarded in different ways than myself and my generation. You know, recognition to them could be a good job. It could be a call out in a team meeting versus I know specifically the millennial generation, we're very hungry for money. Money is a big motivator in our generation. You're going to always have those people, but there's different motivating factors behind this younger generation is what I've come across. Yeah, Maggie, that's great. I think picking up on the fact that there are different motivating factors and you can't just take this one size fits all. Hey, I'm going to pay you a commission and a salary and you should work 50, 60 hours a week because of that. I'm finding a lot of people are looking for recognition, reward-based type of compensation, if you will, where, hey, if we all work together and hit this goal, we're going to go do this thing together. We're going to go to Top Golf. We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to do a team event all day Friday instead of working. And there's this need to have, Scott, you brought it up, the cohesiveness and togetherism of a team. I think that's really, really important to this next generation coming up, while also they want to know where are we going? 
yeah, you're paying me a lot of money. Great. But is this worth my time? Is this a mission and purpose-driven company that is going to help further the development of my goals and our company and our community? So the vision is so much more important than it was 20 years ago. I have to tell a quick funny story. I work mainly in the office. My team works in the office Monday through Thursday, and then they work from home on Friday. And I gave them incentive the other day. You know, if you do hit this goal, you'll get to work from home on Monday. I have not seen that team more motivated and more excited. You would have thought that I offered them each $10,000. They were so excited about a work from home day Monday. And that to me, it just shows me like, okay, okay, like when I'm playing this whole carrot and stick game, figuring out what's going to get them to work harder is something as simple as having the flexibility of working from home. And you got to give the small wins and you got to celebrate the small wins. That's really what it comes down to. I would almost argue the point, though, what is the difference between this generation and somebody like the boomers? You know, this generation's been brought up in this, but I can tell you firsthand from my perspective and the people I have within my company, the younger generation's easier to coach. The older generation is really uh, great people, awesome at what they do. But when it comes to change, it's harder to influence that change and you know, maybe that's because I'm younger than them. That could be. Who knows? But the younger generation really kind of grabs a bull by the horn, and they're used to celebrating those small wins. And that's something we do in our company all the time. If you have a small win, celebrate it and celebrate it hard. And if it's a medium-sized win, definitely celebrate that hard. It takes a lot of steps to get to the final destination often. And if you only have your set, your sights focused on that final destination, it gets monotonous, it gets boring, and it gets harder to get there if you're not hitting the stuff in the middle. And I think that ties directly into what we're talking about right now. Yeah. I think mentorship is something that is now sought out by the younger generation as well. Yes. We've got a mentorship in our mentorship program and we pair people together based on really it's more personality based than anything. What's funny, my dad's one of our mentors and he's obviously someone that everyone wants a mentor under, but I just didn't think there would be this desire to meet with him as much as possible from the younger generation. But we have teams in their mid-20s, people in their mid-20s that he mentored for six months. And he's like, hey, I'm going to be moving on to another person. And it was like, no, I can't, like, do not leave. I want to meet with you every month. And one of our guys, he basically refused to, to let him go. And so they still meet once a month for lunch. And I wouldn't have expected that based on the stories and experience share that I've heard from other peers about this generational group. But my personal experience has been, if you give them vision, you give them tools, mentorship and coaching, I mean, man, they can thrive in the right environment and really take your company to the next level. Well, resources are available at their fingertips anywhere they go. And that cultivates a mindset of, abundance. I mean, they know there's so much more out there versus, hey, I got good at this one thing. This is what I'm good at. I'm going to keep doing this the rest of my life. That's not the attitude whatsoever. So as they're growing, as they're becoming more ego, you got to get rid of some of the neediness and some of the entitlement. I guess that's probably the best word for it. But as soon as you get through some of that, it's all part of maturing. And I'll be the first one to admit when I was in my early 20s, yeah, I was definitely a whole lot more entitled than I am now. I'd love to say I wasn't, but I mean, I thought the world owed me a whole lot more than it did. And I thought I was way better at everything than I actually was. And 
you know, now that I'm actually good at stuff, I look back and I'm like, man, I knew nothing. And like, I know nothing now. So how did I think I knew stuff back then? What is going on? But I think once we can crack that, once we can get through that, they are used to an abundance that previous generations, including the millennials, weren't used to having at their fingertips. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's so funny because what you're talking about, is a little bit of an imposter syndrome, which we all suffer from. All successful people suffer from imposter syndrome. It's interesting too, Scott, when we when I first met you, I think it was 2021, you were a new Aspire user and you were in Columbus, Ohio, just trying yeah. to make it, you know, <laughs> trying to meet all the people you could meet and no, what were you guys, 1 million in revenue at the time? And yeah, I think you would under never, that. <laughs> you would have never guessed, like you came in there, strong posture, getting to know everyone. I'm like, who is this guy? Like he's going places and all of that. So speaking of just your growth, I'm not sure where your company is at today. So you might want to speak to that a little bit, but just your growth through your company, through your personal brand, what are some things that have driven you that like keep you motivated and have provided you with that drive to grow your brand? My biggest thing is giving my family a life that we are designing. And there is no finite expectation on that. We got to the point last February, my wife doesn't have to work anymore. And she is a highly motivated, highly successful person. So that was a real tough swing for us. But we recognized it's probably better for the kids. So we were able to get the financial position between the landscape company and inspire you to the point that she doesn't have to work anymore. We are really passionate about generational wealth and investing in real estate and investing in different areas to give to the future generations of our family. So that's the motivation. That's the motivation for everything. And as I aspire to learn more about that, I mean, nobody ever knows how to buy real estate, run a business, start a business, do any of this stuff. You have to learn it all. And that's given me a love of learning. I want to learn as much as I can every day in every place I can get it. Any place I can have influence, I want to get it. I want to absorb as much as I can. And in turn, I want to give it back. I want to sit at a table I can give stuff away. And then I want to move to another table that I can't give anything away. I got to absorb it all and be able to bounce back and forth rather than pick just that one table. So as the landscape company grew, we scaled the company years ago. An ever-growing beast. Anybody who who has built a company knows that. But we figured out the scale years ago. When we were half a million dollars, we figured out the scale to get to 5 million. When we were at a million, we figured out the scale to get to 20 million. We scale first and we grow into that. And we're living that right now. And it's finally catching up. We have infrastructure in place to have a $6 million company. We should be there within the next year and a half, I would say. And then from there, we're going to go to a second location. We already have that planned out. We know exactly how we're going to execute that. And we're putting all those pieces together, really funded by snow and funded by the maintenance and just expanding everything. But the best part of it is the people. People get, we change people's lives. We've hired really experienced salespeople that do terrible. We've hired people that have never done any landscaping in their life, never done any management, never done any sales and brought them up through the ranks of the landscape into operations management positions, now into an account executive position. You know, our account executive that we have right now is that person. Never had landscape experience seven years ago. We taught him everything he knows, crushing it. The best account executive business developer we've ever had. He just crushes it. And that right there makes me want to keep doing this to affect as many people as we can as an organization. I can't do it alone, but our organization can just build people up and 
do it again and again and again and turn it out. Yeah. It's addicting, honestly, to grow. It is. Because <laughs> those stories is what keeps you addicted. And and you mentioned the love of learning. I think that's so key for growth. But also going back to kind of what we talked about before with the newer generation having this constant change mindset and not being satisfied with doing one trade or one role for the rest of their life. I think as a business today, you kind of have two options. You either grow or die. But And it's always kind of been that way, but now it's more extreme because our team members that we are coaching, we are mentoring, we are growing. If you don't grow your company, they're going to outgrow you in a matter yeah. of like two to three years, I think. Going from zero experience to outgrowing your company in two to three years. But if you are scaling and then growing, Scott, like you are, then you are able to just backfill all those positions with new people and help everyone move up. It's a super fun ride. I mean, we've been on that same ride. We were a million in 2015 and we're going to do close to 17 mil this year. And I've seen that same type of growth in our team. And I just got to commend you for that. I want to actually dive into the specific words you use. You said we scaled our company, then we grew. Most people interchange the words scale and grow. Can you define (laughs) that for us and just (laughs) tell us what you mean? I'm so glad you asked that question. That little side story before I get into that drives me nuts on LinkedIn when you're sitting there and it's like, do you need help scaling your company? Our marketing plan is this a thing for you. And it's like, you have no idea what scaling a company is. If you think a marketing plan is going to do it for me, that's not what it (laughs) takes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would define scaling a company as uh, designing and implementing the infrastructure needed to get to the next level of growth. That's exactly what scaling it is. Figuring out what positions are doing what, who's doing what, how they interact with each other. That's a piece that a lot of people miss. Having a hierarchy chart that this position does this, this position does that. All these lines look pretty great. Everybody's doing their own thing on an island. We got to make a mesh. We got to figure out how the positions intertwine and work together with each other layered in place. So scaling first has to do with that, designing that hierarchy, designing the infrastructure, the human resource infrastructure, as well as the asset infrastructure, the equipment as well as the sales infrastructure and getting them all to work together. We need to have progressive sales plans and we need to have progressive tactics to get cash flow to pay for everything. And then we need to have progressive execution, progressive communication. It's all about progressiveness and having that scale allows you to do that. Yeah. So it's scale is the blueprint. I think a great analogy is let's go back to design, build, landscape. And right, this really smart mentor of mine one time said, Justin, to build a a $2 million landscape, you have to know the last thing you're going to do. Yeah, the first thing is always demo, whatever, subgrade, but you have to know what is the very last thing you're going to do? And are you putting the tree in last? Are you putting the hardscape in last? And then you back it out from there. I think it's the same analogy. You can put that to business. If you want to be a $20 million business, what are you doing in the fourth quarter of the year? You are a $20 million business. Like, What activities are you doing as a $20 million business in Q4? And then you just slowly back that quarter by quarter back into where you are today, whether you're half a million or 5 million or 10 million. And then you can create that scalability to get to 20. And then executions number two, which is you use the word grow, which I think is a great description of what you do after you scale. Yeah, absolutely. 
And the biggest thing is the perspective on it and looking at everything. A $20 million company is like beyond comprehension for the majority of people in the landscape industry. But you might own a $5 million company and not even be able to comprehend that. Guess what? It's as simple as creating what you have exactly the same way four times. That's it. That's all it takes to get to 20 million. And having the scale and the infrastructure in place, like it's literally that simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's so simple. Once once it clicks, it clicks. <laughs> and simplicity is key, right? I actually just posted something on LinkedIn last week. It said, complexity is the enemy of greatness. The more simple you can make things, I didn't say make things simple, just make them more simple. And I think that's a great way of how to scale and grow. I like that. I like so Maggie, tell you run a sales team. I think sales is something that us as green industry professionals kind of get to doing last. It's like execution and everything else. And then it's, oh yeah, by the way, we need to go sell. How have you scaled and then grew the sales team that you manage over at Aspire? Yeah, it's funny. And you guys are both probably a victim to this, but every time we go to an event at the for Aspire, people are like, wow, your sales team has gotten so much bigger. There's all these new faces. Like it used to be just Gage and everyone knows Gage is the original. So besides Kevin Kehoe, the original salesperson for Aspire, but to speak a little bit on scalability and growth, I think there were a couple of key moments that caused us to have to scale and scale quickly, obviously being acquired by Service Titan and just the amount of investment they've put into Inspire sales team and in the long-term goal of what that looked like, they gave us the ability to create this large business development team and to have marketing resources to provide to more businesses. And so I think that there was that like a need, right? We're spending this money. You guys better figure it out. But also last year, about this time last year, our VP of sales, Jason Ring, sat us down in a room, kind of the key people on the Aspire leadership team, sales leadership team. And he said, we're doing awesome right now, but we need to think of what it's going to look like when we are quadruple the size that we are right now, or 10x the size that we are right now. And we need to build the infrastructure to support that. And we need to do it right now. So we sat in a room for, I think it was two days straight. I was actually still on maternity leave and I had my baby in in the room with us. And we sat there and we mapped out the United States and we figured out our total, we call, we focus a lot our TAM, so our total available market. And we look at the TAM for landscape in the industry as well, or like the size that we need. We look at bridging into commercial cleaning janitorial. So what availability do we have there and, and rep coverage and what we need to scale and grow the business. So we really sat down with spreadsheets and all of this stuff like nerds. And we said, okay, so how many people, how many headcount can each person handle? Basically all the stuff that Scott's saying. And we drew up this giant org chart. We drew up our goals, how much quota each person was going to carry. And then we went and found a headcount. We went to finance. We went to recruiting and we said, this is what we need every year for the next five years in order to support the organization and the growth. And it's interesting because we're actually going to reach that mark that we built that infrastructure for last year. We're going to probably reach it next year. And so in two years time, we've, we've really grown. And part of that's been through acquisition and some other things as well, but just setting the stage and working the machine, like setting the model and working the model has really been the way here at Aspire Sales that we've been able to grow things. And I want to give one plug to 
Mark Tipton. I know you guys both know Mark Tipton, our owner and founder. The one thing through all of this growth, I joined Aspire when we were, I was employee number 23. So we were a tiny little company. I know people have been here longer than that, but one thing going from 23 employees to now 700 employees that has not changed is the culture of the company. And we spoke to this a little earlier on in the podcast, but hiring the right few people, hiring the John Goals and the Brian Moores and the people who have been with Aspire in the beginning, the Gage Roberts, making sure that that culture has was set right from the beginning and then has translated in every single other hire you've made throughout the growth of the organization. That is what has led us to our success and our growth of our sales team. Big two good names there. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say I'm grateful, Maggie, for having me on the pod because you have an insight from Aspire that is one of the, I think, Scott, you mentioned progressiveness and moving the industry forward. Aspire maybe is arguably one of the biggest forces towards this progression in our industry that we've seen and I've seen in decades. My dad says 40 years, it's never, nothing's ever been this big, this quick, this good. And our industry, like we are on the tip of the spear from a service-based standpoint and attracting more private equity money, attracting more attention. And I think Aspire in the mindset and culture, Maggie, you just spoke to is a big part of that. And Scott and I are able to glean insights in our Ignite conferences and everything else. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's a great story. Thank Mark Tipton, Kevin Kehoe, don't thank me. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, back to you. All right. I c- couldn't stop thinking about your guys' snow growth because in 2021, we met, you kind of told me about your vision and here you are living it out. The snow move is something I think is unique to you. I really don't know any other companies going snow first, landscaping second. Just give us a look into the inside of what that planning session looked like when you guys decided to make that pivot and go all snow, similar to how Maggie and Jason sat down and and created that vision for Aspire. Our planning sessions for anything we do just start at a round table. We sit down and just talk and take notes. That's it. If somebody would walk in and not actually listen to the conversation, they'd be like, these guys don't even work. They're just sitting around a table talking. But then like, if you listen to the conversation, that's where the ideas come from. So... We've been wanting to get into this industrial and into the distribution. We used to subcontract some of our equipment into distribution channels. So like we we knew how to do the work. We got to get these accounts ourselves. We do better work than the people we're subcontracting for. Why are we being subcontractors right now? And that was really where it started. And the other piece of that was it's not a recession resistant. It's a recession proof service. They need us. They hands down need us. You know, some of these data centers, uh, Josh Gomez from East Coast Facilities shared a statistic uh, last week when I was with him that he has a meta data center that they service that loses $860,000 a minute when it's shut down in the winter if it shuts down for snow. It's just like, that's ridiculous when you really think about that. And a lot of the places we service aren't far off of that. I mean, we're doing industrial parks, we're doing multiple buildings, and they lose a substantial amount of money. So that was where the conversation started. How can we get a guaranteed revenue stream that's going to protect the company no matter what happens economically and weather-wise? And that's the complete upside-down model and reverse look that everybody has on snow. But guess what? It's working for us. It's working really well for us. 
and we have 12 month billing for snow that we're getting flat rate billing with landscape attached to it for 12 months out of the year, whether it snows or not. That's how we can afford the equipment that we have. I mean, we're up to, I think we have 24 loaders now and metal plus implements on the front of each one of those wheel loaders. So, I mean, the wheel loaders are with a metal plus anywhere from 250 to 300,000. The skid loaders with the metal plus on the front, they're about 100,000. So, I mean, it's a ton of money. But if the clients are paying for it and you're selling it the right way, it's guaranteed revenue. Plus, we get to go in and sit at the table and say, hey, you know, let's talk about your cash flow. And they're like, you're, you're the landscaper. It's like, no, we're, we're a service partner with you guys. Let, let's come in here and really have a conversation. And one of the big things on distribution is general managers. They're managing the sites. They get kickbacks for keeping their sites on budget. So we sit down and have that budget conversation like, hey, how would you like to know what you're spending on snow? 12 months out of the year. And they're like, huh? And it's like, you can get a kickback for that. I know how this game works. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's talk. And that level conversation immediately introduces you to a really sophisticated buyer and you get to go up the chain a couple of steps. And those types of conversations get you in front of the decision makers instead of just submitting bids. And you start having these interactive workshops with the clients. And it's truly a sophisticated seller, sophisticated buyer coming together for a very sophisticated solution for the whole industry. And that's exactly the plan of attack that we have with it. Yeah. You know, we serviced quite a few hospitals and same thing, right? Because they're for them, it's revenue coming in, it's people coming in, it's safety, it's all of these different things. And they were some of the hardest sites to service because you had to be there at any sort of precipitation. It was some of the most lucrative as well. Similar, you know, setting that, um, being a true partner, one of the accounts that we serviced when I was doing snow was like a retirement home community. So there are individual homes that we did their driveways. But one of the things that we did to set things, set ourselves apart or in Justin's word, like raise the bar was we asked them at the beginning of snow season, who has medical needs that need to get out of their driveways immediately? And they would service those driveways first because safety came and they would pay a premium to get those driveway service first, because if someone has to go to dialysis, they have to go to dialysis. And so it's a really being a partner with snow more than any other service in the landscape industry is one that pays off. And you're going to retain those clients year over year. And like you said, grow your business from it. And then word of mouth, property management, new distribution centers, all of that is going to lead into more business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredible too, because I mean, snow is, you earn your street street cred with snow. Like if you're doing a good job with that, they want you for more stuff and they don't know anybody to introduce you to the first conversation you have. But after a bad winter, they're like, oh yeah, I got 10 friends. Uh, By the way, let's go, let, let me have you meet my 10 friends. And your business development takes care of itself to a large degree once you really do that. Well, you got to do a bang up job. You can't be in there and messing stuff up. It's got to be next level class act communication. We're communicating with our clients constantly. 24 hours before an event, hey, we're seeing this. And we have a third party weather service, uh, True Weather, that we've partnered with. Awesome. Like next level, nobody will be calling for anything. And they're like, hey, it's going to be one to two inches of snow. And we're like, yeah, True Weather says this. We know it's going to happen. We email our clients and they're like, You're not, nobody says that. It's like, just trust us. Just trust us. And sure enough, it comes through. So that gets us more credit. And we're out there servicing the sites. But they know we're coming out. They know what our plan of attack is before we do it. We're not just going out there, showing up in plow trucks, throwing a bunch of salt down, starting to push snow around. They know exactly where the snow piles are going. They know that if they get too big, where they're getting moved to from those areas, 
and they know what our plan of attack is. They even know right down to the loops that we do and the patterns that we're pushing the snow in because we give them maps. We show them everything. So our clients know literally our entire operation before we even start. You're using property intel on all that, right? Well, what's that? So you're using property intel on all that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's got to give your team, the the zone managers, the ability to execute at a high level on a repeatable basis too, right? Yep. It's standardization. I mean, it goes from, we already have it produced for our crews. We had it produced for the sales models, for the presentation for sales. That's where it starts. And then that goes right to the crews and that goes right to the client. We already have it. Why not share it? Yeah, that's awesome. Scott, I think you've probably turned some people's mind around on snow and hopefully they can look at it in in a little bit different light going forward. And just quick question before we start to wrap up, do you guys require the maintenance services to be added with the snow or would you do just snow for a property? We do just snow for properties. Absolutely. Because we find it that when we do the snow, the maintenance usually follows. They really go hand in hand. We've adopted a model that landscape maintenance doesn't really have that much to do with maintaining the landscape. It's to maintain snow contracts. And if we can get the snow contract, we can usually get the landscape maintenance. And it's mind boggling how many people do just snow or just landscape. And when you're sitting at that table having the conversation, you tell them you do both. They're like, what? You do both? We can have one point of contact. And it's like, yeah, who else has been bidding this (laughs) stuff? It's like, it boggles my mind. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's good. I think offering multiple services and being that one point of contact as a service partner, as you put it, is the differentiating factor that has led to your guys' growth. And and I'm sure we're going to continue to see great things in the future for you. Yeah, I hope so. We're going to keep working. That's for sure. We're going to keep grinding. (laughs) (laughs) I have no doubt that you will keep grinding for sure. Well, I know that all three of us could sit here and probably keep this Let's make this a three-hour podcast and talk all day. But (laughs) as we wrap up, as we do on all podcasts on here on Trades Talk, we like to ask you, Scott, for a trade secret. So something that you can't pull out of a book or a movie or anywhere that you've seen it, just something you've learned organically through your time in the trades and working with companies. Take that jump. Just be ready to take that jump. If you're scared, it's probably the right move. Do it. Don't necessarily do it blindly. But if you have one eye closed and one eye open, sometimes that's okay because you'll figure it out as you go. Nice. That's a great way to end it, guys. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you you. so much, Scott. Have a good day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. 